0: Hello everybody, this is Jennifer Matarese. and before I get started with the episode, I'd just like to take care of the usual housekeeping. If you've been wanting to hear a particular disaster on the podcast, you can do so for a $25 or more donation to the GoFundMe, which will be linked through the podcast Facebook page. I'll be accepting requests for disasters to cover on the podcast as soon as possible. You just sign up at the GoFundMe and send me a message either through email or through GoFundMe or on Facebook. Normally when it comes to requests, I do them when and if I can, but this will mean I will definitely cover the topic you request as soon as I can finish all of the research for it. The subject for this particular episode was actually a suggestion from Rachel, who's one of the hosts of Yours and Murder, and as dark as it was, I just couldn't pass it up. If you'd like to help support the podcast on a more regular basis, you can do so with a one-time donation through PayPal at disasterareaatmail.com, or on a per-episode basis through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash podcast. A per-episode donation of even as little as a dollar an episode can help me do things like pay the rent and buy groceries and keep the professor fully stocked in pig's ears. So if you do become a patron, I would very much appreciate it. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at Disaster Area Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Disaster Area Pod. And please think about rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And as always, the sources for each new episode can be found at Disaster Area Podcast dot wordpress Before we pr- I proceed, I would also like to preemptively apologize for any word I might mispronounce. There is a lot of Portuguese in this episode because it is set in Brazil and I know Spanish, so if I instinctively pronounce like Spanish, that would be why. Finally, a trigger warning. The disaster featured in this episode features the deaths of children. Very violent deaths too so if you feel in any way that you might want to avoid this particular episode considering that trigger warning it may be best to wait on listening until you're emotionally prepared or just skip the episode altogether i completely understand this is going to be a tough one guys with that taken care of thank you very much for listening and welcome to disaster area Episode 96, the Jena'uba Massacre. October 5th, 2017. Fourteen deceased, 37 injured. Sometimes this podcast is really hard to research. Sometimes it's because the subject matter is incredibly difficult to read about. Sometimes it's just because source material is hard to find. And sometimes it's because almost everything is in another language. In the case of the Jena'uba massacre, all three were a problem. All of the good sources were in Portuguese, and we all know how good I am at that, and then once it was translated, the content was a heartbreaking read. I'd never heard of this before, so when Rachel texted me about it, my response was a more profane version of, dude, what the hell? I was appalled, and when I'm appalled, I do research. So this is why today I am going to tell you the story of the Genoa Massacre. If you look at a map of Brazil, the state of Minas Gerais is located just inside the Atlantic coastline in the middle of the country. And in the northern part of the state, about 600 kilometers north of the state capital of Belo Horizonte, is the poor, dry, and dusty town of Janauba, whose name means silk cotton in the language of the native people. Founded in 1943, Janauba's first citizens were enslaved black people who fled from their captors and native people who were dodging Portuguese settlers called banderantes who wanted to enslave them as well. About 70,000 people live in the town of Janauba, which sits 672 feet above sea level and possesses a climate that sounds mostly like a desert, not really humid, kind of arid, unpredictable when it comes to rain to the point where droughts aren't uncommon. Still, Uba depends on cattle ranching and grain production as the main source of income for its population. If you're looking to buy bananas, coconuts, or mangoes, you can get them in Uba. But if that's not your thing, there are other employment opportunities to consider. There's a Dow agroscience plant located in the city. There's the town's two hospitals, if you're so educated. There's also genofolia, the local carnival festivities, if you're looking for something a little more fun to do during the year. But despite what work might be available, income levels in Genova are not exactly enviable. I seem to recall in one article that I saw that they were 1.7% percent, or, or 1.7 minimum wages. That was what it was. And with low income comes in many similar places, fewer education opportunities, lower quality places of learning, or both. For many people in Genoa, particularly older people living in the more rural areas of town, they get along just fine knowing only how to write their own name. 39 primary schools and 7 middle schools exist within Genouba, understandable given that in the most recent census, just over 10% of those living in Genouba were 6 years old or younger, so there's a lot of small children in Genouba. But while the situation is improving, Genouba still suffered in recent years from schools, which could use a little bit of an update, especially considering the enrollment rate of kids between 6 and 14 was 98.5%. Centro Municipal de Educacao Infantil Gente Inocente was just one of these, a school and or daycare, depending on what source you look at, located on a dirt road named Rio Novo in what looked to be a fairly rural part of the city. The creche or nursery took care of Infants, toddlers, and early education kids on a daily basis, providing the families in the area with a safe place for their kids to learn and grow while their parents worked or t- took time for themselves. The nursery wasn't exactly the best funded school in the area. It stood behind a packed mud wall with a metal gated door, and its decorations and buildings didn't really look up to scratch, but the Photographs of the kids during classes, parties, and performances showed the kids enjoyed learning new things, making friends, and their teachers. Many of the kids did not exactly have a lot back home. The Rio Novo area wasn't rich by any stretch of the imagination. So the nursery gave some of them opportunities they unfortunately didn't have access to at home. One of the nursery's employees was night watchman Demiao Soros dos Santos, and much like with other episodes about mass shooters, I am not going to be saying his name again. He'd been born May 21st, 1967, in Portorinha, about 28 kilometers or so from Jenaúba. He was the youngest of 11 children, seven sisters, and four brothers. These days, he lived in Jenaúba just like his mother, his brothers, and one of his nephews. He himself wasn't married and had no children, living on the same street as the nursery, but he certainly seemed to like kids. When it would get hot out, he would make popsicles and sell them to the neighborhood children, or give them out on holy days. The 50-year-old man worked at Gente Innocente for eight years, keeping an eye on the place overnight so the school would be safe for the children to come morning. Because of his night shift, the guard's path never crossed with that of the children who attended the nursery on a daily basis. If anyone were to look at his social media accounts to get some sense of what he was like, the guard seemed like a nice enough guy. One of the sources for this episode described him as a, quote, peaceful and lonely figure whose profile on an unnamed social media site, I suspected it was Facebook given the description, but I wasn't going to put that down, also stated that he wouldn't hurt a fly. There he added, if anyone doubts, ask my family. I did everything I could to help. I never hurt anyone. Perhaps his worries came from his mental health problems. The guard was not well the death of his father on October 5th, 2014, hit him hard. That was when, according to one of his sisters, he started to break down. In the photo of him on social media, the guard didn't exactly look troubled, although plenty of mentally ill people don't look troubled. I don't look troubled. In the picture, he wears a helmet from riding what looks like a dirt bike, smiling for a selfie. But according to a psychiatrist. The guard was suffering at the time from persecutory delirium, which is the phrase he used, which is exactly what it sounds like. He lived at home with his elderly mother at the time, but then he started to side-eye the meals that she gave him, positive that she was starting to poison him. To protect himself, he moved out into a two-room house, which was described by one person as totally unhealthy and inhospitable. His psychiatric treatment didn't pan out. After the situation was referred to the Public Prosecutor's Office, a psychologist examined the situation and suggested the guard should be given psychiatric treatment to deal with his paranoia. The Psychosocial Care Center in Janouba provided a specialist free of charge for the guard to receive that treatment, but he skipped out on it. Authorities didn't have the right to forcibly hospitalize the guard, but they could contact the nursery and give them a heads up about the guard's mental state. But he worked at night, not during the day when the kids attended the nursery, and so they figured everything would be fine. The guard made his last post to social media on Monday, October 2nd at 12.35. In a previous post just that morning, he said he was um he has always planted love, truth, peace, happiness, and freedom, which could be read as affirmative and also could be read like one of those cheesy throw pillows your mom might buy for the couch at Hobby Lobby. Within the next day or so, he told his family he was going to give them a gift. He was going to die. He didn't elaborate, and given the confusion many neurotypical people have in response to the mentally ill, it's possible they thought it was just words, nothing more. But inside, he was planning out what he was about to do. When the guard arrived at the front gate of the school at 9.30 in the morning on October 5th, 2017 if you'll remember that was the 3rd anniversary of the day that his father passed away. It's entirely possible people were surprised to see him there. He'd left in July to go on vacation, but then he either stayed out of on his accumulated vacation days for 3 months or just hadn't come back at all. According to him, he'd had a medical problem and hadn't been able to return earlier. But he had a medical certificate to turn in to reassure them he was off sick for three whole months and not just skipping. Could he come in and hand in the certificate? Apparently, whoever was at the door allowed him in. But what happened next is a little fuzzy. Either he went to the office to turn in the certificate first... Or as soon as he was allowed in the front gate, he veered to the left and headed into the first doorway he found, which led to a play area filled with about 50 people, many of them children. Inside the room were several teachers and teacher's assistants, along with a group of children from 3 to 7 years old, all of whom must have been startled to see a man a lot of them probably didn't know storm into the room. The guard locked the door behind him. Then he took out a container of something and sprayed it all over the students and teachers near him. Maybe it took them a second to recognize the smell of alcohol. Maybe even then they thought that couldn't possibly be what it was. Then, using an ignition source, a match, a lighter, something, he lit himself and the others alight. The children began to scream in horror. Teacher Hele de Abreu Silva Batista rushed forward not away from the burning man, but at him. Silvia Batista was a tough woman, married with three kids to a man who was attending dental school. Twelve years earlier, she lost a son, five-year-old Pablo, who died when he drowned in a pool, uh, in the pool at a club. In her years as a teacher, she pushed for and supported the inclusion of children with disabilities in Janova's schools, which was her pet project. The day before, she sounded a little hoarse, and a friend suggested she skip school the next day. I have to go and take care of my children, she said. I cannot miss it. After all, this was Children's Week, or what kids in other countries might call Spirit Week. There were games, parties, sing-alongs. It it was a busy week. That day, she planned to show some movies, hand out popcorn and candy, and teach her classroom full of four- and five-year-olds how to howl like a wolf. And now the night watchman was in her classroom, setting the place and kids afire, at one point embracing the nearest children, presumably in an attempt to take them with him. Smoke and flames began to fill the room, and Silva Batista directed the children away from it as best she could to what few areas of ventilation were available. But then she supposedly spotted him attempting to start yet another fire. At that point, she pounced. Silva Batista grappled with the guard, distracting him and keeping things from becoming even worse. The fire latched onto her as well when rescuers finally got through the doors they found silva batista lying next to the guard both of them in horrific condition apparently at this point it gets a little fuzzy as to what happened rescuers did arrive there is video that i will talk about in a moment on cell phone of people arriving at the school very hectic situation and so how exactly they got out, how exactly they got in, is not exactly detailed in a lot of things that I was looking at. Or if they were, they didn't translate very well using Google Translate. But the point of it is that if he was trying to make it worse, Silva Batista kept him from killing more children. One officer who entered the nursery after the um, everything that happened decided the best option was to get the injured children out quickly, passing them out the windows, the only sort, sort um, source of light left in the room. Then he noticed the grates on the windows. One of the easiest exits from the room was not remotely an exit at all. They all had these blue grates on the windows, one can only presume to prevent people from breaking in and... And in this case, what they needed was a way to break out. Fourteen people in total would die in the Genova massacre at the Gente Innocente nursery. Ten children, three teachers, and the perpetrator. Of the children who died as a result of the fire, two were five years old and the rest were only four. Four of the children died in the classroom almost immediately, while the rest died over the course of the ensuing days, in horrendous pain as they struggled to deal uh, to heal in the two local hospitals. Some were so seriously burned they would soon be transferred to Hospital of Pronto Socorro Joao, 23, in Belo Horizonte. The last of the victims to die, five-year-old Gabriel Carvalho Il Oliveira, would cling to life until he finally succumbed on January eleventh, two 2018. The perpetrator lived until the afternoon of that first day, until he finally died of heart failure at janoba Regional Hospital. On the other end of the spectrum, teacher Heli de Abreu Silva Batista, whose bravery managed to save something like 25 children, suffered third-degree burns over 90% of her body. The descriptions that I saw of their injuries said that he actually had of his body burned, so in fighting back, she got injured worse than he did. It was a miracle she made it to the hospital alive at all, and she passed away by nightfall. Teacher's assistant, Jane Oliviera Lopez Martins, also passed away on what was her 63rd birthday. One of the victims, four-year-old Ana Clara Ferreira Silva, had a twin brother, Victor. Victor was supposed to be in the classroom that day, but he stayed home sick with conjunctivitis. One of her two sisters, who was in the room at the same time of the fire, held Anna Clara's hand as she passed away. About 50 people were hospitalized with injuries, but as the day wore on, only 10 were still in the burn unit with serious injuries. The day was tragic, but it could have been much worse. In the room across from the guard committed his atrocity were the infants staying in the nursery that day. Video footage of the street outside the nursery at the time of the massacre shows a crowd of people in cars packed onto the dirt road. Some of the women are clearly crying, clutching children, or both at the same time. One woman in a blue tank top sobs and gestures to the sky with one hand while carrying a baby with the other. Another video from earlier than that, however, shows the crowd just beginning to grow as smoke rises from the nursery. Anguished people cry on the street as the person recording the moment on their phone walks up to the blue and white wall surrounding the school and walks inside. A couple of men with towels taped or tied around their mouths rush past carrying buckets. At least one can clearly be seen pouring water through the windows parallel to the outer wall, which were the windows with the gates on them. And this is unsurprising since there was only one fire extinguisher available. Loud thumps from an unknown source come from inside the building, which really could be anything at that point. In photos, the interior of the nursery following the attacks shows scorched walls, burned mats, and melted toys. The left half of a chalkboard is blackened from the the flames. Two rows of pictures labeled with their names—Bola for soccer ball, Jacare for alligator—the numbers from 1 to 10 in Portuguese— are smoke-stained and hard to read. An enormous section of the PVC ceiling is gone, burned away or damaged or fallen as a result of the fire. The pictures of the room show these big long strips that are just hanging from the ceiling uh, just after the fire. After the fire, police would go to the guard's home, hoping to find some answer as to why he did what he did. The house was in disarray, to say the least. Among all the hoarded items and trash, police found something unsettling. Alcohol. Gallons and gallons of it. Supposedly, there was a comment in one of the sources that I read that said that they might have been used for his hobby of making popsicles for these children. Uh, But to be fair, it could have also been for him to be taken into the school to set the fire. The police also found confusing letters or notes regarding the statute of the child and adolescent, a Brazilian law governing the rights and protections of young people. It said texts in the translation that I had, so uh, because there was some kind of comment uh, about there not being a response, I assume that what they meant was letters, and that was something that uh, kind of struck me, that he may have been sending out these letters in regards to this law. It didn't really say what the content was, if he had some sort of problem with it, or he thought there needed to be updates, or or whatever was going on, but he did seem to be focused on that sort of thing. The authorities also soon shut down the Guard's social media sites. This, while the name Janauba became the number one trending word on Brazilian Twitter. The governor of Minas Gerais, Fernando Pimentel, decreed three days of mourning for the victims in the state. Uh, The president of Brazil at the time, Michel Temer Temer, also wrote a couple of tweets, basically, um, you know, sending out his um, support and his concern and his anguish in regards to what happened. Because it was in Portuguese, I really didn't want to read the translation. Um, but f- all of the translations that I read sound ve- sounded very respectful and and uh, concerned about what was going on. Like I said, though, the translations were different and they were a little messy, so I just kind of left it at that. On October 8th, Brazilian President Michel Temer granted the National Order of Merit to Professor Hele de Abreu Silva Batista for her bravery during the incident and for putting her life on the line to save as many as 25 of the children in the room at the time. I did name her as a professor there. A lot of the references in these um, translations said professor or teacher, um, I'm not exactly sure how the, she would have been referenced in Brazilian culture so I'll you know I like professor and I think you know she more than earned that title the teachers at the nursery had been somewhat prepared prior to the fire just in case anything bad might happen in April of 2016 a team of local firefighters met with teachers from the nursery to provide them with lessons in first aid and emergency techniques ironically they met with the teachers in the exact same room where the killer would set his deadly blaze a year and a half later one source for this episode showed a picture of the teachers sitting in chairs around the edges of the room as a firefighter speaks to them the walls clean and off-white the chairs of vibrant sunny yellow they're also those little kid chairs that are very small uh or at least they looked that way the ones that when you sit in them you look a little ridiculous But after the fire, it was discovered a fire brigade wasn't officially checking the nursery for the effectiveness of fire safety systems and precautions. Still, a local fire chief stated even with those fire safety systems working as well as they could, the Janauba massacre was a unique experience that more than likely would not have helped that much more. Uh, Not might might have been uh, might not have been helped much more if all of those systems were up to date uh, you don't really see that sort of thing coming and so even if they had had everything exactly the way it was supposed to you can't really plan for a guy to set himself on fire in one of these classrooms after the tragedy the public prosecutor's office started several investigations including one into the background of the perpetrator to try and discover what caused him to commit this heinous act which is when all of the uh information about his mental health came up. Uh, Another to ensure that the victims and their families received proper medical and psychological help in the aftermath. There were several others um, just to make sure that the money that was, um, any money that was given to the community to kind of try to help them out went in the right place, that sort of a thing. So there was a, a lot of local help and state help, and help throughout Brazil for the people in this community who lost loved ones in the fire. Within days of the tragedy, Brazilian President Michel Temer authorized the release of 8.7 million Brazilian reales, or about 2.3 million American dollars, to demolish the old Gente Inocente nursery and replace it with a newer, more up-to-date nursery. The money would also be used to build two additional schools, one of which would be named after teacher Silva, Silva Batista. So she would, one of those three would be named after her. He also allowed for funds and new equipment for the Velo Horizonte Hospital, which cared for so many of the victims. On February 19th, uh, 2018, I did see another source, by the way, that said March 18th, but February 18th was the one that I saw um, in a video. I'm taking that one. Uh, because it was a news story. The new school reopened on the site of the former Gente Inocente nursery. About 30% of the old school was demolished, but the rest of the building was refurbished with 235 square meters added onto the nursery with the goal of serving uh, 45 children at a time. Now, it said 235 square meters. I'm not sure if that's, it seemed strange, like a strange number to me, but um, then again, this wasn't exactly a a big school to begin with. The symbol of the school is a tree with heart-shaped fruit, and its name is now taken from the hero of the Genova massacre, Hele de Abreu Silva Batista. The room in which the tragedy occurred has been turned into a special patio on which the children can play and learn with brightly colored plastic chairs and a trampoline. If you look up the address for the Centro Municipal de Educación Infantil Liente Inocente on Google Street View, you will not see the new school built on the site out of part of the old school and newer sections built over the course of several months. On Google Street View, it is a bright and sunny day in Canaúba and our Rosenda Pereira Farias is bright and dry and dusty. That seems to be the Street, the actual street name. Uh, the building at ninety-nine, number ninety-nine, sits behind a wall in which an old, pale blue door serves as the entrance, with a rough and chipped set of cement blocks serving as both steps and a ramp. The building at number ninety-nine is white with a tiled roof, and only the upper part of it of the building can be seen over the wall. The windows have metal grating over them, and unfinished frames. A small sign on the wall labels it as Cresce Barrio." rio novo rio novo Bairro rio novo there we go a nursery in the neighborhood of rio novo from the outside nothing looks amiss about the building and there isn't anything amiss the photo was taken in september of 2011 six years before the nursery in the picture would see one of the most horrific tragedies brazil would see in years none of the children who died in the janauba Juma- massacre had been born yet when the photo was taken I really did this one because I felt like it was going to be a quick story Uh, there. It being only a year ago, there really isn't a lot of information. And especially considering that he really didn't, uh, the person who perpetrated this really didn't leave a note or any sort of manifesto or anything like that that said exactly what he was doing there really isn't a lot of background on him uh, as opposed to in other situations, for example, with, say, the Basque School Massacre where there's just tons of information and there's a book written, which really great book. And, uh, uh, you know, other situations like this, uh, the UT Austin Tower shooting, that's another one where there was a lot of information because, you know, we just had years to go about it. But, of course, also those are two American uh, tragedies as to as compared to one that happened in sort of a rural relatively rural um brazil i don't, I don't know if i really want to say rural just because it's seventy thousand people and i'm not exactly sure um if that would particularly qualify in brazil uh it, the area itself looks rural that picture from 2011 looks like it is in the middle of nowhere And um, I say that as somebody in a very small town, it actually looks like it's in a smaller town area than the one that I'm in. And my town has maybe 1800 people in it. So it's not exactly um, the busiest place in the world. But when Rachel told me about this story, I mean, it says a lot that neither one of us had ever heard of it before. And so I kind of checked into it and started looking for stuff. And I figured, you know, it could be one of these shorter episodes, which is true. Uh, but at the same time, it was just a story that I really wanted to tell because if I haven't heard of it and Rachel hasn't heard of it, you definitely probably haven't heard of it unless you live in Brazil or were um, fortunate or I guess unfortunate enough to have uh, heard of it when it first occurred. It It's just so nightmarish and so upsetting Um, I know I said in the last episode that I posted yesterday that uh, the next episode is sort of uh, would be sort of um, typically nightmarish as opposed to the last episode with the Sunshine Skyway Bridge where that was just my nightmare. That's that's my nightmare driving off a bridge and being underwater in my car and it's filling up with water and I have to get out. That's my nightmare. This is another kind of nightmare entirely. I have a really hard time with these episodes that are about small children and where they die. But at the same time, I feel like these kids, um, you know, I don't want them to be forgotten and I can't think of anybody who would want them to be forgotten, especially considering the hell that they went through. I I gave the trigger warning at the beginning of the episode because it is a very hard situation. It was hard to research because you're reading about all these poor children that are passing away. They didn't pass away at once. That's the, probably the most upsetting thing for me. I think if it had been a matter of you know, they had all died on, on, you know, immediately, that would be one thing. But these were children who were in the hospital, for the most part, six of these children were in the hospital for weeks, days, weeks, months. And that is a lot of pain to go through. And that's not the only children who were affected. They were just the ones who passed away. There were several children who survived. And at the time that the school reopened they were still at home um, you know you know still injured still suffering and attending classes there really traumatized to the point where their parents weren't even sure if they were going to come again which is completely understandable you know you you have to wonder oh, what's going to happen with these kids are they going to be able to stay home and learn stuff like that or are they going to have to go back to this place that is the site of one of the worst traumas they may ever experience, if not the worst trauma they may ever experience. I was um, doing things in regards to the, mass shooting book that I wrote the, the novel that I wrote and the thing about the novel that I wrote it is is it is about a school shooting and there is a part in the beginning of the book where the main character kind of has to decide well do I stay home and uh and take classes you know at home do I go back to school in an entirely different school district or do I um do I try to test out and, and, and get my GED? You know, what what are my options here? Because going back to the school that she was at when this occurred is not an option. And it's not just an option because she really can't go back. It's just um, an, a, not an option because mentally and emotionally, it's traumatic. Um, what they're doing with these kids um is kind of the best of a bad situation you can't just um on one hand you you can't completely um eliminate the school you know this this land that you have you can't just let it founder there you have to do something with it on the other hand um you know if you can change things around and you can show these kids you know we we have bars to you know we have a fence around it and a gate to protect you from this happening again and we have all kinds of safety equipment and look we've made everything new you kind of show these kids that they can move on and it's the best that you can do because these are traumatized children who saw something horrific And I I mean, talking about it is one thing, hearing about it is one thing, being there is a completely another. And whatever Janauba needs to do for these kids, it sounds like they're really making an effort, both in um, the city of uh, Janauba and the state of Minas Gerais and throughout Brazil are really trying to help these kids out because clearly what they saw was anybody's idea of a nightmare. Uh, hopefully I'll get another episode tomorrow, uh, for you guys. I'm kind of pounding out scripts one after another. Uh, I have another one that's, that's a lot, a lot of it is already done. So I may even be able to get it out tomorrow. Um, if anybody wants to, uh, do anything for, um, me pounding out scripts, um, I have to take the puppy to the veterinarian tomorrow and I have no money. So any, you know, PayPal, there you go. Uh, Um, I want to thank you guys very much for listening and until next time, stay safe.